Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Uh, yesterday was the, the Feast of the Nehruz, the start of the new Coptic year, September 11th. So a happy new year. Uh, in Arabic, translated as uh, every year you are nice. Uh, so it's always nice to take these opportunities uh, that correspond with the, with the Coptic calendar kind of to reflect on our own uh, spiritual lives and to think about our own lives. Uh, as mentioned before, the Coptic calendar starts in the year 284 AD, uh, and that's when uh, Diocletian, which is the worst of, he's the worst of these 10 consecutive emperors who persecuted Christians, started his reign um, of terror on Christians. Uh, Tertullian, the historian, says that uh, about Diocletian reign, he says, if the whole martyrs, uh, if the martyrs of all the earth were put on one arm of a scale and the martyrs of Egypt were put on the, mar on the arm of another scale, that the martyrs of Egypt would, would tilt the scale, that there were more martyrs in Egypt um, under Diocletian's re reign than, under, uh, than the rest of the world. And they estimated something in, in, the, in the order of 800,000 people uh, were martyred under his, his reign. Um, and so over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the end of the world. Uh, we've been talking about the second coming. Um, we've been talking about uh, and the end of our lives and how this perspective changes how we act uh, and how we live differently and how we focus our lives uh, as Christians. Uh, last week, Abuna Carlos talked about the temple uh, and the kingdom and the destruction of the old temple but that the new temple was his flesh and that our life was in, in Christ and we're all part of it. Um, so the church is always kind of living in anticipation of this second coming. Um, and it offers man kind of a foretaste uh, of this reality. So the, the church isn't fearful of this end. It's in anticipation. It's in joyful anticipation. You know, in fact, at the end of the creed, we say we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the coming age. Every single creed, we say that. And in fact, we sing that part to emphasize it a little bit more. Uh, so then in the new year, we just read about John the St. John the Baptist. Uh, and the Feast of the Nehruz is all about martyrdom. And so the question is, what's the link? Um, what's the link? For these last few weeks, we've been reading about the second coming, the end of the world. And then the new year comes and we start reading about mart martyrs and martyrdom. And the church basically wants to give us an example of a person who lived and truly embraced all the things we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Someone who is unconcerned with their life, knowing that, that if they didn't die today, they're gonna die tomorrow. If they don't die this year, they're gonna die next year. Um, someone who wasn't really thinking about the world. And so the martyrs obviously enhance that but before we talk about martyrdom, let's just take a, a quick step back. You know, Christ has this power that was very unusual. The laying down of himself, of self-sacrifice, even unto death. He said once, I have the power to lay it down. And this power, the power of laying down oneself, offering death in obedience and witness to the glory of the Father is really quite remarkable. It's not a natural instinct of human beings or any animal, right? Our instinct is self-preservation. And so the instinct to lay yourself down for someone else isn't something that comes naturally. And it's one of the 
um, one of the qualities that the Holy Spirit imparts on us. It's the qualities of Christ himself. So the main function of the Holy Spirit is to transmit to us all that is Christ's, including this power, the power of laying down oneself. So Christ laid down his life, was not seeking his own glory, but the glory of his Father through the cross. So I want to focus on this word divestment. What does that word divestment mean? It means to strip, to deny, to deprive, to rob, to separate from, to take away from. So it means to lose something, to have something taken away from you, to, ha to give something up even willingly. So it means to take away from a person or dispossess property, authority, a title. So, you know, examples of he was divested of his rights or she divested herself of all her worldly possessions, okay? So when was Christ's divestment of glory? When was it the largest? When, what was his humiliation, his primary humiliation, when he divested his glory as God? Where was his glory taken from him the most? And when we think about this question, we think, oh, the cross, right? And this power, he said, I have the power, I have the power to lay it down. So he chose to give up his glory on the cross. So his power to divest himself of his glory was really shown and made manifest at the cross, right? I think we can all agree that was his most humiliating moment when he was stripped naked. But then the question is, did this power that he had happen all of a sudden? Was it, was it, did it just come on? So let me ask it a different way. Was this his first divestment of glory? Was it the first time Christ had given up glory on the cross? And so long before the divestment of his human glory, before he was stripped naked, before he was hanged on the cross, before he was humiliated and cursed and spit upon, there was a much bigger divestment of glory. Can anyone think of with me when that was? When? When was the bigger divestment of glory before the cross? The birth, the incarnation, right? When God chose to become a man. So this is the first and the real big, the main divestment of God, right? It's, it's the, and it's also the what? The hidden one. And that's going to be very important here in a second. So the first hidden divestment was when he became man. And sometimes we get all hung up on he was born in a manger. Look how humble he was. He was born in a manger. But if you think about it, what if he was born in the largest castle on earth and there were 10,000 trumpeters trumpeting as soon as he was born? Wouldn't it still be the most humble act in the history of mankind? Was the manger really the part that did it? Or was it him going from God to man? That was the big one, right? It wasn't the manger part. So he, humi he accepted this humiliation and this divestment in the incarnation to serve as a servant of God. So it turns out there's two levels of divestment. The first one, the secret one, the hidden one, the inward and highly private, thank you, Ruby. The pri highly private divestment on the level of God through the incarnation, and then the second one, the manifest one, the public one, the one that everyone got to see, which is the cross, 
two levels, the hidden one and then the public one. So we tend to focus on the public one, but the hidden one is the big one. And we see this, this gets highlighted on Palm Sunday, right? We focus on the fact that Jesus rode a donkey. And we think, wow, he's so humble. He's a king, and he rode on a donkey. But then the church, like 10,000 times that day in its hymns, tries to remind us of something else. What does it say over and over to us? He who sits on the cherubim today rode on a donkey. Right, so even if he were not riding on a donkey, even if he was riding on a chariot with a hundred horses, it would still be a very humble act. And the church wants to remind you, don't get hung up on the donkey, right? He was, he's on, he sits above the cherubim, rode on a donkey, right? So the hidden, the hidden divestment is the big one, not the fact that he sat on a donkey. So it's kind of like an iceberg, right? We always see the tip of the iceberg and we think, wow, that's a lot of ice. But of course we know, right, the bottom, the part that's submerged, the part that's hidden, the part that you can't see is always much, much larger than the part that you can see. So St. John Chrysostom kind of summarizes all this. He says, he that sits on the right hand of the Father was willing and earnest to become our brother in all things. And for this cause did he leave the angels and the other powers and come down to us and took hold of us and did innumerable good things. So the same, now let's go back, the same applies to the gift of martyrdom. The life of the martyr is a lot like that, like Christ's life. Martyrdom is not something that people did without preparation. You can't go from giving up nothing to giving up everything. So the Holy Spirit must have already been at work in these people's lives in a secret way. So there was an inward divestment in the depths of their life with God, and it was in private. The martyr is already giving up. He's already living the hidden life. He's already living the submerged part of the iceberg. And then the divestment comes when man rejects this so-called glory of the world. So that bigger divestment, the first one, that's the big one. That's the life of the martyr that we really want to celebrate. Right, and that's the lesson for us. What's the martyr? He's a simple person who simply lived a Christian life, his whole life. And you can look at martyrdom as like a diploma or a certificate, right? You know, when you go to school, you take a bunch of classes, you take a bunch of exams, you, you write a bunch of papers, you learn a lot of things, you take quizzes, you do homework, you do practice problems, right? You learn all of this stuff. And if you successfully do all of these things, they give you a piece of paper. And they say, you did all this stuff. Frankly, if they didn't give you the, the piece of paper, the certificate, it wouldn't really matter. You did all the stuff. You learned, you took all the classes, you wrote the research papers, you did all the work, right? You, you become educated. Whether or not you get a piece of paper, eh, doesn't really matter. And of course, the opposite is true, is true right? If you take someone who never takes a class, who never does any research, who never does any homework, and you give them 100 pieces of paper, they're still dumb, right? They still don't know anything, right? So giving the piece of paper isn't the thing, right? It's what you did for the four years of undergrad or for your master's or for high school that results in the piece of paper. That's the, that's the big thing. So martyrdom in and of itself isn't really much, but it points to the work that was done before. It points to the work 
that was done in private. It was work points to the divestment, the giving up, the sacrifice that was done in this person's life before. You know, John, uh, a few weeks ago in the, in the adult meeting, you know, talked about with, with, with athletes, it's all about the process and not the outcome, right? And so here we see the same thing at work, right? It's the process, right? That's what's working in the lives of the martyrs, right? It's, it's them divesting over and over again. And really, that's every Christian person. That's all of us. If we're really, truly living a Christian life, we're living like martyrs. We're giving up. We're divesting. And whether or not we actually attain the, 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 the crown of martyrdom is kind of irrelevant. Okay. And so Christ is constantly calling us to practically fight and divest our pride and our egos. I want to tell you an, a wonderful story about uh, a monk named Abbot Trifon. He lives in Seattle. And I just heard the story on the radio and on a podcast, and I thought I'd share it. He was in a coffee shop. He's an old man. I don't know if anyone's ever seen him. He's got a big beard like Santa Claus, and he's a big old man. And he was in a coffee shop at a Starbucks, and he's sitting there enjoying his coffee, and two younger men are talking, and they see him, and they very loudly say to him, you know, only a stupid old man would believe in God. And they, and they, they kind of say it to each other, but, you know, he was six inches away from them, and they said it very loudly. And so he said, I didn't react. You know, obviously it was directed at me. I didn't react. I waited a little bit. And then as I was leaving, I went to the cashier, and I said, I'd like to buy two gift cards, and I'd like you to give it to those two men right there, but I want you to wait till after I leave. So she did, and he said he left and didn't think anything of it. And a month later, he was back at the coffee shop. He's swinging by, and he happens to see the two men there. And so they see him, and they walk up to him, and they say, why did you buy us gift cards? We want to ask you a question. Why did you buy us those gift cards? And he said, because my God teaches me to love. And they're like, but did you hear what we said? He said, I heard what you said. But my God responds in love to an act of unkindness, and so I'm going to do the same. And he said that one of the men said, Father, can you please forgive me, and started crying, and then started pouring out his whole life to Abbot Trifon and all the things he was going through and suffering from and asked him for his prayers. It's a beautiful story. But the, the part I want you to focus on is Abbot Trifon's reaction when they said, only a stupid old man would believe in God. He didn't react, right? It's kind of like when, you know, the nerve endings on your, on your arm are dead, right? And someone pokes it with a needle, right? If you're alive, you say, ouch, okay? But if it's dead, it doesn't feel. So they poked, and he was already dead there, right? That piece of pride and ego and that part that, I would have said, how dare you talk to me like that? Don't you, can't you even respect an old man? And what do you know, you punk kid? All the things I would have said, right? That part in him was dead. He had no ego, right? And, and that's, that's the part we want to get to. That's where the martyrs were. Skip that one. Right, so, so the Holy Spirit is affecting in him this divestment of his, of his self in a secret way, in a private way. And of course, 
when we talk about the martyrs, you know that we're being selective in our history, right? There's a selective remembrance of history. Don't think for a moment that there weren't people who when someone threatened to kill them, they denied Christ. In fact, there were many people who denied Christ when threatened with martyrdom. When we talk about the, the St. Minas and the St. Georges and the, and the heroes, but I can assure you that if someone came in to this church and put a sword to some of our throats and said deny, I'm sure many of us would, right? And I'm sure that happened a lot. And so what's the difference between the martyr and me who, if a sword was at my throat, I'm not sure what I would say. The martyr had already been living in martyrdom. The martyr had already died. He's been dying to everything in the world, all its pleasures, all its fulfillment, all his, all his goals and dreams. He's already dead to them. So when someone comes and says, will you give up your life as well? He's like, sure. I mean, I'm already dead. And so the people who didn't give up in the history of the church, they were holding on to the world. They loved the world so much. They're like, I have a lot to live for. I have a lot of things to do. I have degrees to get and Teslas to buy and lots of stuff to do. And that's why I don't want to die. I want the world. Saint, uh, in the Gospel of, of St. Mark, Christ says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole life and yet lose their souls? I want to read to you a quote from uh, Father Jacques Philippe. He says, and, and he talks about how, how this abandonment and this divestment has to happen. He says, in order that abandonment might be authentic and engender peace, it must be total. We must put everything without exception into the hands of God. Abandonment inevitably requires an element of renunciation, and it is this that is most difficult for us. We have a natural tendency to cling to a whole host of things, material goods, affections, desires, projects, etc., and it costs us terribly to let go of our grip because we have the impression that we will lose ourselves in the process, that we will die, but this is why we must believe with all our hearts in the word of Jesus, the law of who loses, gains, which is so explicit in the gospel. Whoever would save his life will lose it, while whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who accepts the death of a detachment, of renunciation, finds the true life. The one who clings to something, who wishes to protect some domain in his life without radically abandoning it, abandoning it into the hands of God is making a very bad mistake. He devotes himself to unnecessary preoccupations and exposes himself to the gnawing sense of, lo of loss. So why do we celebrate martyrs on this day? It's not the public act of sacrifice. It's not the heroics. It's not the he stood in front of the governor and said X, Y, Z. It's that hidden life that Father Jacques just talked about. So are you going to shed your blood if you won't shed the desire to get praise at work and acknowledged for your work? Are you going to give up your life if you won't give up getting what you want at home? Are you going to physically die if you won't die to the sting of being insulted by someone? Are you going to give up everything if you won't get, give up 
getting an extra hour of sleep on Sunday morning. The shedding of blood came as a diploma. It says, I've already put in the work. I've already dug deep. I've already sacrificed. May we all be prepared for this witness of Christ, not as martyrs necessarily, but in every day, in every aspect of our lives, the daily death of our egos and wills. I'll end with this prayer by St. John of Kronstadt. He gives us some practical advice on how to do this in the new year. He says, thy will be done. For example, when you want to be and do your best to be painless and healthy, and meanwhile you remain sick all the time, say, thy will be done. When you undertake something but the enterprise fails, sa say, thy will be done. When you do good to others and you are paid with evil, say, thy will be done. Or when, for example, you want to sleep and you have insomnia, say, thy will be done. Do not be annoyed at all when something is not done according to your will and learn to obey the will of the Heavenly Father in everything. You would like that there were no temptations with you, but meanwhile the enemy torments you and with them every day. He kindles you, oppresses you in every possible way. Do not be irritated, but say, thy will be done. And glory be to God forever. Amen.